0: Welcome to One Move at a Time, the U.S. Chess podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area, one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month in which Chess Life editor John Hartman goes more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month and that is hosted by our women's program director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our assistant director of national events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. Welcome to the December edition of One Move at a Time. Our guest today is Grandmaster Maxim Dlugi, joining me in person from the 2021 National K-12 Grade Championships. He is here doing a simul, all-comers blitz, and a lecture. He was born in Moscow when it was still part of the Soviet Union, and arrived with his family in the United States in 1977. He won the World Junior Championship in 1985, and was awarded the Grandmaster title in 1986 for his result at the World Chess Olympiad in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Tlugi was formerly ranked number one in the world by the World Blitz Chess Association. His best finishes in the US Championship were 3rd place finishes in 1984 and 87. He was elected president of the United States Chess Federation in 1990 and he was one of the campaign managers along with Garry Kasparov for Anatoly Karpov when he ran for FIDE president in 2010. Welcome to the show Max. Thank you, Dan. So, as I said, we're here at our first major in-person scholastic event in 2 years at the National K12 and the beautiful Shingle Creek in Orlando. Uh, what have been your impressions of this event so far?
1: I'm very happy that we finally have a live event because uh, the kids were just you know, ready to you know, burst, you know, with, with desire to play some live chess. And obviously, you see a lot of uh, a lot of kids here. Even though you know not everyone's vaccinated, but there's still like 1,200 people, kids versus maybe 1,600 at its peak or something like that. So I think it's a very good showing considering. And uh, I look forward to more, you know, kids playing, because obviously, the more kids play, the more they enjoy, the more they want to study. And, uh, you know, the better they become. That's what goes.
0: So I attended um, the lecture you did, which was a a lot of fun and and was well received. The people that were there were, were very into answering your questions and shouting out their moves. But Uh, Since we don't have access to an analysis board, let's talk about one anecdote you shared from that that I I found uh, particularly interesting when you compare what people's thoughts are about how top grandmasters prepare for um, uh, their rounds in major events like the U.S. Championship. And you've got an interesting little story about how you went about preparing for uh, one particular game when you were thrown the carol can, as, as your suggestion. So just please share that story and what the prep really was all about.
1: Yes, the prep was basically playing a good game of Miss Pac-Man because uh, on the morning of the second round of my first U.S. championship, when I was due to play Jack Peters, a very strong international master from California, uh, Roman uh a top grandmaster and one of the best players in the world at the time, calls me in the morning, early morning, 8.30, and says... Um, okay, let's go play Miss Pac-Man. And, uh, of course, (laughs) it was my first U.S. Championship. I was 18 years old. He was 38 or something like that, maybe a little older. And I uh, certainly wasn't planning to prepare for my games like that. So I I said, look, I'm playing in the U.S. Championship. I'm kind of busy preparing. And he says, who are you playing? And I said, well, Jack Peters. What are you going to play? Sicilian, that's what I play. No, 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 no. You have to play the Karokan. Khan. I, I won $18,000 beating Lubomir Luboevich in the New York Open with the Karo You have to play the Karukan. And you And know, I said, but I don't really play the Karo Khan. Uh, I said, no, 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 I will teach you once you play Miss Pac Man. So we went to play Miss yeah. Pac Man. It was a one and a half hour deal, which I actually managed to win. Was, Ginger was a top, top competitor in Miss Pac Man, but I was also pretty good. And then we went to his room and he prepared the Karokan the Knight D7 kann which is now i think called the Karpov variation and uh, which i still play it's uh, it's actually amazing that uh, uh for the last 37 years um, i've been playing this uh, this variation um and in major competitions and uh uh even though i completely screwed up the opening uh i managed to win the game in uh, under 25 moves and it was kind of a start of a nice Career in chess because uh, I started the U.S. Championship that year with four and a half out of five, the best I ever started, and eventually finished
0: third. So, how did that career in chess start? Did you? I assume you learned um, as a child, still in the Soviet Union.
1: Yes, yes, I learned uh, as a child from my grandparents, my father. Uh, I think a big help and maybe the, an advice to to uh, uh, parents who play some chess is not to be overly. Uh, destructive when they're playing their kids but to actually give in a little bit because that's what my father did and I think it helped uh, me a lot that even though I was losing to my grandfather, um, I would beat my father and I felt like well, I got one adult down, I just gotta get my granddaddy and then uh, uh, when I finally did and then when my grandfather passed away I asked my, my father when I was already beating him handily, I said why were you so much weaker than your dad, like what's going on and he says, what are you talking about? I could give him nine odds. Like he was no match. Says, what do you mean? I kept beating you and I lo- lose to him. Says, no, no, no. I, I was giving you the games. And uh, only then I realized that he was really helping me by instilling this level of confidence that, you know, that I had to continue to play and, and not stop. So it's even though it's tough, and it's actually tough for stronger players to do that, that's why, why I think it's uh, very rare that we see strong players having very strong children. Um, they really have to change their mind, mind and, and, and their way of thinking to be able to lose games to their kids, which for people that are good chess players who have killer instinct is very, very difficult. Uh, but if they can do it, they can also teach their kids if they can make that happen.
0: Well, I think you just gave me a better theory about why I'm mired in class C and never reached GM status. It's because my father never let me win, and did, I didn't beat him until I was 17 years old. <laughs>
1: yeah, then you have to. Then you start from scratch at that point, right? Right. So yeah.
0: So you were 10 or 11 when you came to the U.S. What, what was the circumstances around your family immigrating?
1: Oh, it was a typical immigration of uh, you know. This was a time when uh, there was a uh, huge n- number of uh, uh, Jew- Jewish people immigrated. Either to Israel or to mostly United States, uh, it was kind of a, a deal that uh, Jimmy Carter made uh, with Leonid Brezhnev, who was the premier of Russia, you know, of, of Russia at the time. Uh, kind of like Jews for Grain, it was called. You know, basically Russia had the bad harvest years for a while in the 70s, and uh, and also Leonid Brezhnev had a Jewish wife. So uh, I think the wife uh, pressed a bit. Or politics and <laughs> that maybe people don't know and and uh, they had this deal and uh, uh, an immigration was opened up to Israel uh, all the way up until 1980 when Carter decided to boycott the Olympics because of the invasion of Afghanistan then it stopped but uh, we left in 77, 70, end of 76, December 76 in fact three days from now will be exactly 45 years since uh, we left the you know, uh, Soviet Union um, and uh, uh and uh, of course I played, I played chess. Uh, I played chess from when I was about seven years old. And even on the way to uh, America in Italy, there was a, a immigrant center where they played table tennis. I remember and chess. And there were two chess rooms that I competed in. And I came in third in one and, and tied for first, uh, with like a 2000 player, roughly 2100 player in the second and blitz. And, uh, but this uh, this kid who was like twenty something years old uh scared everyone. He said, "But I have the better Buchholz. Mm. No one knew what that meant. like the whole place went mm, silent. Oh my God, the guy knows such a word mm. give him the give him the first prize <laughs> and so I got second, but uh we tied so it was it was pretty good and then, when I came to the United States, I was trying to uh get to a chess club. It took about a year because it was actually not so easy for us. we didn't know. We didn't speak English, we didn't know where to go. And only later when I started reading a little bit of English and I opened up Yellow Pages, I remember I found Manhattan Chess Club and I said, Dad, you got to take me there. And that's that's how my chess career (laughs) restarted.
0: (laughs) Did you have any particularly notable teachers uh, in those early days in the U.S.?
1: Absolutely, yes. I mean, uh, the first junior term that I played in, I scored three out of four. I lost to um, my good friend Andy Lerner who was at that time the elementary national school champion. And uh, the kids were like, who are you? you? They were like super good. I'm like, what do you mean? I just lost this, this guy. That guy is the national champion. I'm like, oh, okay. That, that, that and it was like an 80 move game. And so, okay, that feels good. Uh, and so, No, you got to start taking lessons with Jack Collins. They're all Collins kids. And so I started uh, a very nice relationship with uh, my first coach in the United States, Jack Collins. And, uh, that, uh, that went until I was about uh, high 1800 when I kind of felt that I can already do, you know, I, I need a little bit better training. And then I took a one-year uh, rest from coaches, went up to about 2250. And then when I started to drop, uh, a friend of mine, Eric Schiller, uh, who is you know, famous for writing lots of chess books, uh, he suggested that there's a there's a program which actually gives free lessons uh, to kids who are you know high, highly rated at a young age. I was 14 and a master, so uh, I had a choice between Vitali Zoltsman, uh, a Russian international master, and Edmar Madness. Uh, uh, and uh, I felt like it would be easier probably to do lessons in Russian or somehow I don't know what it was, but I decided that I will choose Vitali Zolson, and it was a great decision, uh, I think, because Vitali was an amazing positional player with an amazing understanding of chess. And no one knows this, but he was, at one point, the Soviet Union junior champion. But because he was Jewish, he was disqualified for not reaching out his hand first when he drew Grandmaster Soviet in, in a simultaneous exhibition. He did not extend his hand first, and for that he was disqualified to play chess for a year, including the world junior championship that led him to the belief that he must leave Russia at all costs, which he eventually did. But, uh, it took him a long time. First he became a, (laughs) he went to a club that traveled overseas called locomotive, which is a, a, a train based club train. So they would sometimes play at train stations in different parts of the world. So he was hoping to defect at that point. But, uh, uh, it didn't happen because when he finally won the club championship, they didn't let him go. <laughs> they didn't let him uh, move, uh, with the team. So he stayed and basically left with the same, same time as we did in 1977, I believe, or six. And, um, uh, like with the big wave of immigration, you know, the, the green wave. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and that's how he came about the same time as, as me. And he, he, he was, uh, he was a monster when he came in here. He was beating everybody. He won the World Open. He was winning all these Grand Prix tournaments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but uh, on the other hand, you know, he had his minuses, which was he was kind of, kind of blind in tactics. His tactics were not very good, but his positional understanding was such that when uh, my friend uh, Shernaz, uh, uh, who also took lessons with Jack Collins at my advice, uh, when I uh, when I moved to Vitaly, I, I suggested that she also move uh, and start taking lessons with, with Zoltzman. And she was friendly with Bobby Fischer, very friendly. And uh, she told him that she was leaving Jack, who was, of course, very close to, to Bobby. And, of course, that didn't go well with with Bobby. And he said, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. Who is this? Send me his games. So Sharnaz sent... Uh, Bobby Fischer, Zoltzman's games, and when he looked at them he said, "Okay, so this guy's 2700 positional chess." And uh, I mean that's probably the best compliment Fischer ever gave to any to anyone because can you imagine? Fischer himself like 27 something, you know, whatever, you know, is saying, "This guy is 2700 in positional chess, but he's blind a about in tactics." So with tactics you got to still ask me what to do. But positional chess, yes, you can go study with him. He gave a green light and she started studying with Vitaly and and went up quite a
0: lot after that. So I'm curious if you identified any difference in the American way of training juniors when you were with uh, Collins versus the way the Soviet school was teaching you.
1: Mm, not uh, too many uh, in in the way that I think Jack was very good a very good coach because he actually used a very similar system he would show games of great players explaining them he would show end games which is very important because actually my first rudimentary knowledge of end games came from Jack Collins I remember looking at rook and pawn endings you know the typical you know bridge building and uh, and uh, all, all the philidor and lucini positions and uh uh that would be a, a normal way to, to teach. Of course, uh, I would say the Botvinnik School of Chess does something a little bit different, but that's a, probably at a different higher level where the kids play each other and then they critique the games on their own. So they actually go through and say, well, I, I did this wrong. I did. I think I should have done this. And they kind of try to think it out. And then the coaches look at it and say, well, what about this idea? What about that? Did you think about this? and And kind of moving them forward in the way that they... Consider chess moves. So that's probably the slight, important but difference.
0: And now, of course, you're a noted chess teacher yourself. You have your Chess Max Academy, which is based in Manhattan. And I understand you're also opening an office in Connecticut.
1: Yep. In Greenwich.
0: Uh, t- t- in Greenwich. So tell us about the academy, the history of it, what you do there, how people can uh, find it.
1: Thank you for the question. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, when I came back, I was working in finance for 25 years. When I came back uh, to United States with my uh, wife uh, uh, who I married uh, nine years ago, um, I uh, didn't, wasn't really sure what I was going to do. Um, I had an idea to still uh, do something in finance, though related with chess. That was my kind of idea to have a private equity fund uh, that focused on chess projects. Um, also, I'm a bit of an artist, so I wanted to explore explore the possibility of kind of uh, doing something with my art. But uh, then I called up my coach Vitali Zoltzman, and I said, "Hey, how are you doing? What's going on?" He said, "Where, where are you? He said, I'm I'm back in the United States." He said, "Oh my God, you have to start teaching chess." And I said, "Teaching chess? I didn't think of that actually." He said, "No, no, no, you have to start teaching chess. You, you, it, it'll be really good for you." And so I said, "You know what? I'll try that. That's an interesting concept." And and so I started and within a couple of months i was completely overwhelmed by the uh, students i was i had no free time i could not b- imagine this because uh, i didn't know this world existed actually and so um pretty soon i realized that the only way for me to actually teach more kids was to start an academy and have it do it in group classes because you know what i what i was showing a lot of it could be replicated you know, and shown at the same time to a number of kids and so I started the chess academy, a smaller one first, uh, like in a two-bedroom apartment, kind of uh, with a separate exit on 81st Street. And then we opened up a bigger place on 77th and 1st, um, and which had already like over 200 kids. And uh, it, it, it took off. I started hiring coaches, which you know now I'm probably up to about 14, 15 coaches um, in the academy. And we run about 55, 60 classes a week. Uh, of different levels, from kids from three-and-a-half-year-olds to masters and national champions. Uh, one of my students, Hans Niemann, is now you know, a famous chess player, he was junior champion. Um, unfortunately, I don't have all the time in the world for him, so I'm actually trying to hook him up with some other strong coaches around the world now. But I, I did spend like about four hours preparing him for the U.S. Junior Championship, which he won, which was very nice. I'm not going to give away what... I think he needs to work on because I think that should be his opponent's job. <laughs> uh, it's probably
0: Miss Pac-Man. miss Pac-Man.
1: Definitely. Uh, and uh, so uh, basically uh, I, de- the last six years I was working on the curriculum. So uh, I think that's the most important part of what I, I did is I devised the curriculum for kids from scratch all the way up to, you know, masters and higher. And, and this is the curriculum that my coaches now, um, teach i have master coaches only uh, in the academy and um because i believe that it's very important not to make any mistakes when you're teaching little kids uh a lot of the club players they think they can Hmm. teach an idea but uh, one little mistake and the kid knows something incorrectly for the rest of his life because it'll be very difficult to switch him off um uh you know i i I don't know Maybe I mentioned anecdotally an episode when I met Gary Kasparov uh, and his study of geography. At some point uh, when we became friends, we were flying from Canada, St. John, New Brunswick, where the World Chess Championship took place, um, which Mikhail Tal won, to uh, New York. And uh, Gary, on the, way, on the plane back from Canada to New York, asked me how to spell New Hampshire. I was very surprised, but I did spell it for him. And, uh, and I said, why would you need New Hampshire? And I saw he was writing something down on a declaration, like New Hampshire. He goes, yeah, we're flying to New York. I go, yeah. He goes, state New Hampshire. I'm like, what do you mean? New Hampshire, New York state, New York. He says, no, no, New York is in the state of New Hampshire. And so we actually, I was amazed as in, I was trying to convince him, but he was willing to bet. So I said, look. I'm not going to take more than $20 for this Mm. because that would be just very low of me. So I'm going to go to Andrew Page, your agent. He's going to come back and confirm to you where Mm. New York is located, which I did. And, uh, but I think that part, that knowledge could have only come from some place, like some geography teacher saying New York, New Hampshire at some point of his life. How else would he even get that, that notion? So, uh, that's just to demonstrate that one little mistake can go through your whole life and you, you won't know unless someone you know, wins a bet against you. Right, right. <laughs> um, so uh, the Academy uh, we're physically located on 79th and Columbus which is uh, uh, just across the street from Museum of Natural History which is beautiful and uh, 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 we have a nice place, a backyard uh, so kids can play chess there outside and inside everywhere and uh, we're opening up a second location Greenwich Connecticut now in 1st
0: of January so how do they uh, find you online
1: chessmaxacademy.com that's the name of the academy uh, there is a there is a there is a shorter way to get there which i use which is just com. that's for you know special people <laughs> but it'll it'll go to the same place okay
0: um, and the 14 coaches are they working full time or is there a is it just part-time?
1: It depends. I mean, some 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 coaches are working a lot. You know, some coaches are working a lot. Some coaches are working less. But uh, uh, some just have two, three classes a, a week. Uh, we also do a lot of private lessons for levels of kids. Uh have over, over I think, 30 private students a week that we teach. Uh, and this is not me. This is my coaches. So, mm, yeah, it's... Reasonable employment opportunity for people that have extra time.
0: Right, and do you only teach scholastic kids, or do you ever have adult?
1: No, no. We, ha- I mean, we also we have adult. We have adult students here and there. My, of course, less than less than uh, uh, scholastics, but uh, we do have adult students. We're open to everyone. Anyone who, who is interested in learning chess, we're ready
0: to teach. Mm-hmm. So your Kasparov anecdote. Reminds me of something. Another anecdote that is like almost the exact opposite story that Fred Waitskin tells in searching in the book version of Searching for Bobby Fischer about Kasparov's geography acumen, um, where they are flying to Cincinnati, and uh, Kasparov asks Josh, you know, where where what state are we landing in, Josh? And Josh says, well, you know, obviously Ohio, and uh, Kasparov realizes because. I think they're south of a river that they're actually landing in the state. And I'm going to embarrass myself with my geography knowledge, but whatever state is directly south of Ohio is actually where the Cincinnati airport is located. And, and he knew that mm. just apparently just based on uh, looking out the window at the river. I mean,
1: Gary is very, uh, is a quick learner and uh, uh, I have another anecdote when, when uh, he lost to Kirill Georgiev in that, in the world Blitz championship, uh, that's when I actually kind of officially was introduced to him uh, by Dmitry Gurevich. We went up to his room. He was really upset by because the the match started by him uh, stalemating Kirill with a queen and bishop against king in the blitz game. And it was really very <laughs> not a happy moment for Gary. Uh, and, uh, and I said, okay, Gary, let's play some two-minute chess. And he goes, two-minute chess? Never played that. I go, Oh, that's right. So I won the first two games, but then he won the next three. So am I a quick learner? I said, yes, you are. <laughs> so uh, I think I think maybe every time a, a great player and a great uh, person, I think they, they learn from their mistakes. That's one of the things that makes them great. And so I think maybe after that issue with uh, uh, New Hampshire, he said, look, let me study some U.S. geography for a change. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, Now I am curious about the timing of all this um um, another thing that Waiteskin wrote was, in referencing Josh's multiple national championship titles, is just how rare it is for anyone in any endeavor to win a national championship. Yet you've won a world championship at the World Junior. Do you remember your thoughts at the time uh, about what it was, what it meant to be a world champion?
1: I was super happy. I was so happy. It was, first of all, it's a very interesting story how I even got there because uh I was not planning to play in that World Junior Championship and uh, the reason was that it was in United Arab Emirates and there was a boycott that all the kind of um, European and, and North American countries uh were involved in in saying look we're not going to go uh to a place that does not accept Israeli players and that was the decision and you know and when I played in the US Junior Championship in 80 um I knew that I'm not playing to play for the world junior. First place was the U.S. junior title and the, and the free trip to the U.S. Open, basically. So when I won it, I was absolutely okay with that. That was the, that was life. And so I went to play in the student Olympiad in Argentina. I was board one, uh, for us team. We had a very strong team. I was board one, Michael Wilder was board, board two, uh, Vince McCambridge was probably board four. Sergei Kudrin was maybe board three, I don't remember exactly. And, um, and we were doing very well, but the Soviet team had a powerhouse. Yusupov, who was number four. Sokolov, who was number three in the world. Chernin, who was a candidate for the world championship. Azmay Parashvili, who was to become top six in the world, and so forth. So they were killing this event. But uh, even in the last round, when we played the Russian team, uh, we had a chance to win if we only scored three-and-a-half-half, half, which, of course, was impossible. We scored one-and-a-half uh, um, out of four with uh, Sergey Kudrin losing the only game. The other three were drawn, and we clinched second, that way, silver. And So I came back from that tournament. I was on board one. I scored seven-and-a-half out of ten, not bad. So I was happy, and I decided to play in a Labor Day State Championship I think New York. I would imagine New York State. So I go to this championship, uh, and I see who do I see? I see Randy Huff playing in that tournament. And I go, oh, hey, hey, Randy. He was the technical director of U.S. Chess Federation at the time. How, uh, How's what's going on? Anything any news? I was just completely just being you know polite. Uh, and he says, oh yeah, yeah, the U.S.C.F. board just voted to go to the Chess Olympics in Dubai next year, '86. I'm like. Really? How why? So, well, the Israeli Chess Federation put out a communique that you know we would do not want people to boycott the Olympiad because you know we're all one family and you know we understand the situation. Please go if you can. And uh, with a very close vote for the three US board, the UCF board decided to go. And I immediately immediately clicked. I said, wait a second, but what about the World Junior Championship? It's the same exact reason not to go. It's in, mm-hmm. you're, it's in the same place. Oh, no one thought of that, he said. <laughs> I said, "Aha! huh Well, you know, I'm the highest-rated junior in the world. Maybe someone should think of that. Well, talk to Steve Doyle, who is the president. So I reached out, to actually, to Carol Jurecki, who was a very good friend. And I said, Carol, here's the situation. Maybe you can talk to Steve, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think this is uh, something to consider. And she said, absolutely. Yes, I will. And so she calls Steve Doyle. Steve Doyle also thinks it's a, yeah, it's kind of an omission. <laughs> so they they set up an extraordinary meeting of the board by phone. And uh, in the, with the same vote of four to three, they voted that I would be sent to the World Junior Championship about two days before it started. So all of a sudden off I went. But, I mean, at that time, I was already a pretty seasoned player. I played in the interzonal, missing the candidates, uh, qualification for candidates by half a point. So I was actually a pretty good player. But it didn't help me start the event. I, uh, I started badly, first by blundering a pawn to a player from Malta or some country that I, I think it was from Malta. Then, then after winning two games, I blundered a piece uh, on move like eight, to a, a very little known Indian player. Uh, I think his name was Vishvanathan Anand. <laughs> 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 and uh, I, I was shocked. I almost drew the game, even though I was down in peace the whole game, but, but I didn't. And so uh, after, after six rounds, I had four, uh, four points, four and a half, four points because I drew another Hungarian player. And uh, the leader, Pavel Vladny, had six. So two points behind, but then I went on a winning streak and beating guys like Kevin Chuk and uh, Robert Kozinski and some other players, and I eventually I won the World Junior by a point. Uh, even though like it didn't look like that at the beginning, it didn't look so great. Uh, but I came back by basically winning almost every game at the end, towards like the last six seven rounds. So,
0: and then only five years later, at still a very young age, you entered the world of chess politics and became u s chess president what what was your interest what led you down that road
1: yeah that's a great question uh, basically uh in eighty nine i think um eighty eight uh, there was a there was a call for you know um candidates for the grand Masters association board the g m a board and uh, after talking to like some friends, I, I, you know, you know, it was interesting. It was actually my my ex-father in law that said, you know, why don't you go for it? I mean, it was kind of like an interesting idea. Uh and I said, Yeah, actually why not? I have good ideas. Why don't I why don't I try? And so Gary Kaspar was is, you know, good friend. And and so I reached out to Gary. I said, well, you know, would you support me? He said, Yeah, absolutely. Uh so uh so I, I ran, and it was a very close call because, you know, a lot of very strong grandmasters and famous grandmasters were trying to uh, get on that board. And, uh, but I won by, I don't know, a few points. Um, and so I got on the GMA board. And, of course, that got me into, like, the world chess politics in terms of, like, an organization events, relationship with FIDE, which was very important at the time, considering the kind of rift that happened after the canceled world championship match. I think think that was like the major overhang of that whole period that kind of uh, separated people of where they stood. Um, You know, the pro-campo camp, the anti-campo camp, you know, what happened at that event, what, what actually happened. And, you know, now that I, I'm also friends with Karpov, he has, of course, his own spin on the whole story. So it's very interesting, actually, the whole situation. But, um, those days, I was pretty clear that, you know, Gary was treated unfairly because he was the challenger and he could have just won the event, the the world championship. And so, um, so I was very much behind Gary and, uh, I think Gary needed some supporters because of the way he does. He was probably, uh, moving forward. He, you know, he, you know, burned all the bridges (laughs) when Mm. he moved forward. Um, so, uh. So, so that was a, a good experience. And then, when 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 that was going on, uh, Lev Albert reached out to me, and um, Lev Albert uh, suggested, uh, called me, and said, "I think Max, you should run for USCF president." I'm like, "Hmm, that's a strange idea. <laughs> why, why do you think that's even doable?" I mean. Chess players, including like Yasser Serwan, the most they got is thirty percent of the vote, and you know, and Yasser is absolutely much more popular than me. There's like no question, you know, he was pretty much born in the United States. I, I'm, I'm an immigrant, um, and uh, he said, "No, you should run." We have, I have, I have my good friend Larry Parr here. He's going to convince you. I said, "Okay, put him on." So Larry went on, and he started telling me how there's a ch- there's a good chance that they. They can they they know how to run the campaign, and uh, it, it's it's doable if I put in the time. If I I said, what does that mean? He said, well, you have to do about 200 calls. You have to call every voting member and talk to them, and then uh, you have a good chance. And uh, I thought this was like a very exciting uh, uh, a very exciting proposition. At the end of the road, I think it was a great decision uh, because it taught me marketing. I was able, because selling yourself is actually the toughest Mm. sale you could do in in the world. If you can sell yourself, you can sell any product. And so when I started to talk about why um, people should vote for me, uh, it gave me so much confidence. It gave me so uh, so many tools of how to actually present any product, <laughs> including myself, that uh, I think it, it, it really helped me in my life, in my career. Uh, but um, it was an interesting, uh, very interesting uh, uh, process because some, some uh, discussions would take three hours. There would be three-hour calls, and this was before internet, so it actually got kind of expensive. Uh, but uh, the person would tell me, absolutely, I'm not voting for you. And then the discussion would go on for three hours. It was actually very interesting and very fruitful because I think even, even the fact that I spent that time uh discussing it and, and kind of probing the reasons, I think it left a good taste in people's heads that, you know, look, kid is okay, you know, he's he's got other ideas. I have my uh my my group, but he's actually a very reasonable person. So um I did called probably 250 voting members, if not more. And uh, and I, uh, I think I scored about, I think I got about 70-something percent of the vote. So it was just a complete destruction. Uh, Harry Sabine was my opponent, was the vice president uh, at the time, and uh, a huge scholastic organizer, great guy, you know. Uh, but uh, he was not prepared for this uh, kind of serious... Uh, Serious campaign, I would say. It was a very serious campaign because I came out with good proposals and excellent uh, kind of uh, study of what was going on in the Federation. And we had a debate at the World Open, uh, which I think people tell me that I probably won that debate. Um, And actually, during the presidentship, I think it was a very successful one. Uh, Every year that I was president, we went, we were a positive. Um, the Federation was making money and I think I started with the membership at 56,000, uh, overall membership and it ended at about 80. So it was, uh, the biggest rise of chess membership since Bobby Fisher, uh, mm, of all time, including now. Uh, so I think one day, maybe when I'm, you know, old and ugly and I can actually have some free time. I, c- I can actually start thinking about maybe, uh, just trying to become president again okay. to to see if maybe we could do another upturn in the Federation. I mean, I think it's doing well, but I think it could do much better. So
0: so what do you see as the main differences between U.S. Chess in 2021 and
1: 1990? Um, I mean, right now, I think, <laughs> to, to, to my mind, the, the, the U.S. Chess Federation um, is... Is like a huge, a huge ship, cruise ship, that can be turned the right way, and if it goes the right way, it will just, you know, s- discover all <laughs> all unknown lands. But uh, I think it's very slow to turn. And uh, uh, while maybe in the nineties it missed the internet revolution, which was, I think, wildly discussed. Um, uh, now I think there's a huge, uh, there is a huge point that could have been done very much like in professional wrestling. When professional wrestling turned to circus from actual, uh, you know, killing each other, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, the wrestlers became very wealthy and well to do and it became a real profession. Uh, I think, uh, and certainly the last two years were a complete miss because now it's going to get tougher to do this though still possible because I think it's not going away uh, in the sense that it's always going to be an opportunity. But I absolutely think that the biggest thing that USF could do to become a completely different level organization is to start rating online tournaments like real tournaments. And I know exactly what people say to that, but it's like professional wrestling. Yes, of course there's cheating online. Yes, of course, some cheaters will not be caught, but the benefits far outweigh the uh, the minuses. And um, and and definitely, uh, you know, bans should be very strict. If someone cheats, they should be banned for life. Whatever. That's another story. How to do it, what uh, kind of video coverage the players should have when they're playing officially rated tournaments. All that can be. Explained and, and, and part of the rule book. But that would completely change the demographics of the US Chess Federation. It would just go up 10 times. It would be like looking at LeeChess or chess.com, how many people they have playing online, except those people, or one tenth of those people, would be actually doing that for rating, for norms for results that mean something to people. So we
0: already do have an online regular rating. Are you saying that because it's not yet qualifying you for norms and such, that's the difference?
1: No, the difference is online rating is just an online rating. No one cares about it. No one really cares. Uh, I found out it was highest rated in the country for five minute chess. I'm like, huh? Mm -hmm. Do I care? I don't care. Yeah. Uh, and I, and and that's me because I, sometimes I just start looking at, like online ratings and like who's where, uh, but uh, the the real the real growth is kids, and kids want to have a real rating that they can connect with, not like oh I have an online rating, I have a this rating, I have that rating, I have a feed the arena rating. One rating, one unified rating. I mean, uh, Gary Kasparov uh, had this idea of a universal rating system, which unifies all ratings, Blitz, Rapid, and and, and Regular. I think that's a great idea. I hope, I wish them luck that that this actually takes place. But this idea that USCF has an online rating that no one really cares about, like if you ask people, they're not going to even care. So why do something that people don't care about? They do care about the USCF rating though. Mm. The re- regular USCF rating is the rating that has to be focused on. I remember when I was, when I came to United States, played my first turn, got a rating of 1406. I was like, Oh my God, I have a number connected to my name. I can grow that number. That's how I'm going to get better. Mm-hmm. I have a, I have a, I, it's, it's a catalytical. It's, I, I know what to do next. I gotta get it to 1407, mm. 14.08, Keep going. So that's the driving force. If you try to disperse these ratings, you lose focus, and people lose interest. So that's what I think is the biggest miss right now for USCF. Mm.
0: Well, let's take the politics to a different stage. And uh, your your camp. How did your friendship with Karpov start, and how did you become his campaign manager back in two thousand and
1: ten? That's an interesting story. But uh, so Karpov and I, we kind of. You know, we were on different sides of the fences because obviously, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, I was very much uh, pro Kasparov uh, and, you know, Gary was senior advisor of uh, a fund that I managed, Russia Growth Fund, for five, six years, you know, actually official capacity. And um, uh, even though I had a mutual friend with Karpov, Ron Henley, who was his second for a number of events. Uh, I never got to really talk to him. And I think there was, there was an interesting moment, uh, at the world bliss championship in Moscow. Uh, he was there and then there was a VIP banquet afterwards. And we were, I remember Anatole and I were sitting at opposite ends of this humongous table. And, uh, and something, some conversation got stri- uh, started up. And and uh, I, I remembered our days at the Grand Masters Association and something like that. And But it was like cordial. It was cordial. And then, so it was already like a nice beginning. And then one day uh, I see him as a spectator at the Moscow Bliss Championship, which is a notoriously strong tournament with like Svidler and Kramnik and Grishuk playing. And I was playing in that tournament <clears throat> as well. And I see him. And I, oh, hello, Anatoly. Uh, and he goes, yeah. he said, you know, and I, and I just said, you know, Ron Henley all, all, always wanted us to play. Um, you know, when you come to New York. Uh, but now I'm staying in Moscow. You know, and he goes, yeah, that's true. He says, why don't you come uh, tomorrow to my apartment play some blitz? Just like that. And I'm like, oh, sure. What time? Oh, eight o'clock. Okay, cool, I'll I'll be there. <laughs> and that's how our friendship started. I, I would just come to his house to play some blitz uh for like three, four hours, uh you know, talk about this and that, and uh um eventually uh we became friends, and then um, um at some point someone told me it wasn't Gary, it wasn't Anatoly that. That Carpov was running for FIDE present and that it's probably supported by, by Gary. And I'm like, huh? No one, no one told me this. So I reached out to both of them, and they said, let's meet. And so I uh, have some ideas. And so we met, and uh, this was when we kind of had the discussion that you know I'm going to be part of the team to help to help them out. And uh, eventually, at some point, it was actually interesting because. I got a, I got an email or a call from Richard Kahn, who was my old friend, who was uh, the vice president of FIDE on that ticket. Uh, I actually introduced him to Gary 25 <laughs> years ago, if not more. And uh, uh, and Richard reached out to me and says, look, we've got a campaign in Africa, but I don't know what's going on with Af- Why aren't we campaigning in Africa? I talked to Gary. He doesn't want to go to Africa. I talked to Anatoly. I don't know, like, is he going to go to Africa? Who's going to go to Africa? So I called, uh, Gary, Gary says, have Anatoly go to Africa? He's the one running. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'll talk to Anatoly. So I talked to Anatoly. I said, you know, totally, we have to go, uh, we have to set up some thing in Africa, you know? He says, okay, sure. So we went to Ethiopia, we set up, a you know, meeting there for, 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 um, delegates then we had the. then we went to Angola for a second meeting and uh, then we flew twice to Dubai or Arab Emirates in general to campaign with the Arab countries so you know obviously all these trips you know I, I got to know Anatoly more and more and more we played lots of bad <laughs> also some a lot of chess um, but a lot more bad gammon I would say uh, and, uh, and he was very good by the way and and so um, we became really good friends. Um, and, uh, of course, when the campaign actually was completely on the way, I was already, like, managing all kinds of stuff, like all the tickets, all the calls, like, this guy's coming there. There would be a call coming in. And I'm like, what's this number? And I'm showing Gary. Gary, what is this area code? He goes, I have no idea. I pick up. It's a call from Baku. <laughs> <laughs> talking about geography. And I'm like... Uh, Hello, and it's like it's Baku Airlines or like Azerbaijan Airlines, whatever the, the, the uh, name of the airline is. And I go yes, can I help you? He says yes, we have, we have a a, a person from, and then he names some, uh, zombie. I think we have a person from zombie here. I said okay. He says to call you. Hmm. So it's, what's the issue? Well. He does not have a visa to Russia, but he has a ticket only to Russia and not back to Zambia. What should we do with him? Oh my God. These kind of questions, you know, it was, and, uh, and, and by the time he would get the visa, of course, the whole play, the whole tournament would be over. The Olympiad would be over. He would come and get stranded. And, and I said, and I said, you have to send them back. You have to send them back to Zambia. And then I get a, Message like, why, why did you send me back to Zambia? Mm-hmm. I flew from you know, to Baku from Zambia. Like, I'm like, because this is what would have happened to you. And I mean, you came too late. I'm so sorry. You know, but like, it's, um, mm-hmm. and you needed a visa. And sorry. But so all these issues kept coming in. And there would be, at one point, I think I was calculating, calculating there was about a, a call every two minutes and an email every three minutes <laughs> coming into my, I think, Blackberry I had at the time. Like, um, so it was crazy.
0: So you played a lot of blitz with Anatoly and did you have opportunity to, to study positions with him as well?
1: Yes, I was actually his uh, coach as it turns out for uh, a tournament in France, uh, it's a tournament that I think bears his name in Capdac. Uh it's an uh, annual event in October, I believe. So I was actually uh, staying with my mother in Italy and uh, a friend of mine called and said, "Hey, we're going to Capdac. You want to, you know, and and there were some mutual friends." One friend was tr- trying his new yacht that he <laughs> that he was, so it was a nice kind of feeling that to, to come and like just chill. So uh, I reached out to the organizer of DAC. I said uh, Bashar Kuatli, who I know for many years, good friend. And I said Bashar, you know, can you uh, what what's the deal there? If I play or how does it work? He says, oh, you just if you play, we're gonna give you like free board and everything, eat food, board everything. Just come and play. It'll be awesome. I said, okay, I'll come. So I came. That was a mistake. I shouldn't have come and pl- I shouldn't have played, but I, I, I came. And the first person I see, as I just... Well, the first person I saw was Vasily Ivanchuk, which is a different story, because he was like... I go, hey, Vasily, how are you? And I know him since 85, the World Junior Championship. And he looks at me and says, I like, wow, what a reception. I said, Vasily, where do I go to, like, register? And then he like wakes up and takes me all the way to where I have to go. He's kind of an interesting guy. Anyway, then when I registered and like, and I came out of the le- elevators, the first person I see is Anatolia. I'm like, and he's like, Oh my God, you're here. Oh, that's so good. Okay. What do I do in the Scandinavian? And we started. And then just for the next 10, 15 minutes, I'm giving him these lines in the Scandinavian. And then uh, he says, Oh, I got to go. And then he runs off to play. Maria music beats her with the Scandinavian, the exact line I just showed him. And, uh, He's very happy and I'm like, okay, that's great. <laughs> and then I then I stayed his coach for the for the tournament, you know, preparing him for games. He won the main event by like a wide margin, but then in the final he lost to uh, Etienne Bacrow because he forgot about he overstepped in the blitz game. But he he was fine, he was doing fine in turn. So uh, so of course I got to analyze with him. I think more in that tournament than anything else. Although he has and will be continuing to do chess camps at my academy every summer. He did it this year, even though uh, it was a big ordeal because because of COVID regulations, he was taken off two different flights. Uh, He first flew to Poland because he wanted to lay over there, and he was not allowed to go because of COVID regulations uh, because as a Russian citizen, you cannot travel through Europe to the United States. I sent him back to Russia, but direct flight to United States from Moscow, and he was not allowed to go because he was in Europe the day before, in Poland. So he didn't make it. Uh, he was gracious enough to agree to, to do this the lecture at the US Open, which was announced, and he did it over Zoom. I think it was 100, 150 people in attendance. It was very nicely received. And uh, then he did the camp, the week-long camp at, at my academy, which was also wonderful. It was Five hours a day, and more. He was just there, and I said, Anatoly, break. Nope, we keep going. Okay, kids, are you okay? Yeah, like look, Anatoly Karbov, absolutely, we're okay. So it was an awesome camp, but he did come twice before physically, and uh, hopefully he'll be uh, here next August again. But hopefully he'll make it this time.
0: So having worked with him, is did you get any insight into oh? this is the difference between being a strong grandmaster like myself and being a world champion.
1: Yes. I mean, I can tell you that when I started playing Blitz with him and even thinking how he can, and, and, and the camps, I finally closed, had closure. I had finally closure on, on uh, stopping my professional chess career. I got closure. I'll tell you what that means. <laughs> So when I analyzed with Kasparov, and I was his sparring partners for decades, and, and and was one of the coaches that prepared him for Karpov, in fact, in in, in the New York match, um, and then later many different matches and stuff like that, uh, I never felt like, you know, I felt, of course, his strength, his ability to calculate some some things that he would do were quite amazing, especially like positional. Pawn sacrifices. That was difficult for me. Uh, it still is. I, I don't like to give away pawns. Uh, but um, that I think could have, could be learned. I think that's just a question of learning. If we see, like, look at Magnus Carlsen's games, he does a lot of pawns, positional pawn sacrifices for pressure. So we can look at a lot of those games and actually learn that. Uh, tactics can be learned by just working it out, working, working, and doing the tactics, doing different kinds of tactics, having these. Uh, Synapses working the right way, time and again. But what Karpov does cannot be learned. It's a complete, it's, it's, and I mean, this is not just me saying this. I mean, and uh, Garry Kasparov, when he started playing Karpov, he could not understand what's going on. He's like, who is this guy? Why? Why I don't understand what he's doing and he's beating me. Like, how, well, how is this happening? Karpov thinks differently than any other person in the world. The level of his ability to foresee what's going to happen. And to feel where the pieces have to be, it's just mind-boggling. It's, it's inconceivable. So when I finally understood his level of genius, I had closure about leaving chess as a mm-hmm. professional. I said, okay, I would never be able to do that. I would never be able to replicate that. Yes, I could be kind of a different champion, playing differently, but never would I ever understand what he's doing. I once had a game with him. This was amazing. So I I always against Carver, I felt like I have to like be very aggressive because he doesn't punish you immediately. He he like takes a, a while to prepare his final grip on you. So you could kind of try out like Benoni's and Benko gambits and like try try it out and hopefully maybe um, later come back and and get him. So uh, I'm playing this Benko gambit against him, and a phone rings. And he picks up the phone, and I'm, I'm about to stop the clock. He's like, no, 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 continue. And then I said, uh-huh, you're going to do that? You're going to be pl- talking on the phone on a completely unrelated topic and playing me chess? Mm-hmm. Okay, good luck. And I hit him with, like, all my force. I'm making a move, which I think threatens five different things. I'm like, wow, this guy's going down for talking on the phone and playing chess with me. And without even thinking, he plays some move like rookie two, some, some move. And I look around, and all my threats have been stopped. All five of my threats have been stopped with one little move. And I look, like I look at him. How is this possible? How does this guy just he just feels where the pieces belong? It's just unbelievable. So, uh, to me, Karpov is absolutely completely different kind of genius than anyone else I've met. Completely different mind, uh, thinking. That, you know, we talk about Karpovian this, Karpovian that. There is no such thing. It's like, it's just Karpov and the rest of the world. Um, so uh, I'm very happy to, you know, uh, to be his friend. I think he's a very nice guy. Uh, he's very cordial, very attentive. Uh, you know, whenever I call him, he's like, oh, how is Ina? How are the girls? Like, he, you know, he would never he would never even think of that of not asking such a question you know um so um i really you know admire him
0: so even though you say you've come to peace with ending your your chess career or as at least as a player there's a lot of opportunities now an increasing number of opportunities for senior players over the age of 50 have you thought about coming back out of retirement
1: i played in the u.s senior championship three or four years ago uh Mainly because I wanted to socialize. It was a, I thought it was an amazing kind of a, It would be an amazing vacation, so I came out to St. Louis to play in the U.S. Senior, uh, hoping to you know catch up with people that I know for thirty some odd years, but it didn't happen. I was in complete shock uh, of what was going on because after each game, I would seek out. I would actually look. Or, you know my generation players and they would n- were not to be found anywhere and you know we're not talking about a huge place there this is the down that 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 area has two three blocks you know for, and then a few restaurants I would actually go out physically looking for people in those restaurants and bars I would not find anyone I think everyone was in their rooms preparing and I that's not where I went so I was first five rounds I was in complete shock. Uh, six rounds. I think I had one out of six. My score was one out of six. I was so upset that I just, I when I got to the board, I just like, whatever. Then I said, okay, that's the way you want to play it. I'm going to start preparing and I'm just going to spend all my time in the room. I'm not going to look for you guys. And I did. I won the last three games, so I didn't finish so horribly four out of nine. But uh, after that, I actually uh, declined the invitation for the next one because I said, no, that's okay. not, that's not why I came. Uh,
0: Well, you've had a long and intense chess life. Uh, As you look back on it all, what what has chess meant to you? Chess uh, has been a huge part of my life. I'm
1: I'm extremely grateful to uh, to have been involved in in different aspects of chess from, you know, uh, reforming some things, organizing, uh, playing, of course, uh, teaching, which is now very gratifying. I mean, I have uh, 20 national titles, uh, one world championship title from my students, uh, a grandmaster, a few IMs and title players. So, among my students, and this is in the last six, seven years. I mean, it's, and every event, every month brings new joy from kids getting better and better. Um, so, it's been just an amazing experience.
0: Well, Max, thank you so much for appearing on the show. I, again, if you're interested in his academy, the web address is www.chessmaxacademy.com. Uh, they are in New York and soon to be in Greenwich, Connecticut. Thank you so much, Grandmaster Max and for appearing on this edition of One Move at a Time. Thank you, then Thank you for joining us on this edition of One Move at a Time, which always drops on the second Tuesday of each month. Our theme music was composed by National Master Alex King of Memphis, Tennessee. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films, Photography, and Media. Please visit www7 to find out how to start your own podcast. Our sister podcasts at U.S. Chess are Cover Stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, Ladies' Night, hosted by Women's Program Director Jennifer Shahadi on the third Tuesday of each month, And on the fourth Tuesday, Chess Underground, hosted by our assistant national events director, Pete Karyanis. I hope that you have learned something of value that you can now use to help build chess in your own community. We'll be back next month with another Chess World personality who is helping us advance our mission statement to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess.